A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. Now, 2022 has been a breakout year for women's boxing as the Olympic graduates continue to impress in the pro ranks. Undisputed champions Katie Taylor and Clarissa Shields both won gold medals at the London 2012 Games. And 10 years on, they're on top of the world after pretty sensational wins over Amanda Serrano and Savannah Marshall, respectively. Closer to home, female boxers continue to win all around them. Kelly Harrington this year completed a set of major medals, adding a European title to Olympic and world goals. The O'Rourke sisters, Lisa and Aoife, won world and European gold medals this year, while Amy Broadhurst's 2022 campaign has been off the charts. The Loud Woman this year alone has won world, Commonwealth and European gold medals. Today's guest is a Dubliner who enjoyed her greatest successes in the ring around the time Taylor started to win European and world medals in an Ireland vest. And while it's come full circle, with Taylor beating Serrano at a delirious Madison Square Garden. It's also where ruthless Ruth O'Sullivan enjoyed her greatest triumphs as a three-time New York Golden Gloves champion. Delighted to say that Ruth joins us today on the Rocky Road to tell us about her own boxing story. Ruth, welcome to the show. Three times, am I correct there? That's right. Yeah, three yeah. times. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I don't know. I don't know how I got into boxing. Just got introduced to a gym by um a girl that I worked worked in a restaurant with and just fell in love with it, you know, and dabbled with it for a few years and then got serious and then, you know, had a few losses and just kept persevering and then, you know, had a had a great run. <laughs> it did, had a, had a, really had a great run. run, a load of success there. Like three Golden yeah. Gloves, New York Golden Gloves championships. Times your life, I'm sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like the first one. Um, just the hunger that's there, you know, for that one. And the, when I did my first, when I won my first Golden Gloves, I was in school at night. So I was in social work school at night. So I'd be at the gym from, I don't know, 6.30 to 8 a.m. Then I'd go to work from 9 to 5. And then I was in school, a university, um, from 6 to 10. And then I would travel back to Brooklyn. That was in Manhattan, travel back to Brooklyn, sleep and get up and do it again. So I was, I had devoted my whole time to this. Like this was what kept me going and um, just to accomplish it, you know, and I, and the girl that I beat in that golden. So I had fought in the uh, Metropolitan Games a couple of months prior and I beat, um, I won the gold and the girl, because I wasn't a citizen, 
I wasn't allowed to compete in the nationals. So the girl I beat, they sent to the nationals and she won. And she was the only New Yorker that won that year. So she came back and like the media was all over her. Oh, that just fueled me. Yeah. So that was like, that was the best feeling ever. Like just have waited she, she, for that. She was coming back to kick your ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't happen. <laughs> Can you bring us back to this, to the start of your story? Where You're, you're from Dublin originally. What part of Dublin are you from, uh-huh. Ruth? Um, well, Bally Bowden first, and then we lived in Leopardstown. I was in Leopardstown for my teenagers and then came to New York probably at 19. Okay. Were you, were you sporty as a teenager, or as a young girl? No, <laughs> I wasn't. No, I have three brothers. Um, I will say like one of the things in my house, there was no rule. Don't hit the girl. Like that wasn't part of it. It was just. Yeah. You know, each man for themselves. So I was definitely a bit scrappy. And then, you know, I was not sporty at all during my teenage years um, at all. And then came to New York and just, I don't know, I just fell in love with it. Like I just, it fueled me. You you, did, you went to New York on a J1. Why New York? Why not, I suppose? Everyone wants to go to New York. Yeah, I mean, I just want to see New York. Like that's that was always one of my dreams. Like I didn't. I didn't really have dreams to go to Australia. It was always New York for me. What year? What year was that route? I don't know. I think it was probably like 95. 95. Yeah, 95 or 96. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I ended up staying for a couple of years. And then I went to um I decided to finish my education. So I went over to Scotland to the University of Glasgow. And I was there for three years and I trained um, at, they had a gym in there called, in a place called Deniston. And they had some really good champions come out of the gym, but it was like a little community gym. And I don't know, I think it was the first girl that they ever had. And they like made a little makeshift, like changing room upstairs for me. Like they were really, really good to me. So I would, you know, train while I was in university and then, I used to come back to New York for the summer. So I dabble, like I always wanted to still compete. I would do shows when I came back, but I hadn't been doing it. You know, I hadn't been really training all year. I've been really sparring. So, but I just wanted the feel of it. And then um, when I, when I finished up, I, I knew that I had to come back to New York. Like, and I came back for a while. I guess I had, I guess I had a, a normal visa, travel visa, and I convinced this organization to hire me <laughs> on a J on H one visa. So I did that for a while. So once you found boxing, you didn't really look back. It's something that kind of came to you in New York. You said, "I yeah. think that uh, you discovered it while you're working in a restaurant, and one of your fellow workers in the restaurant was a boxer." And you said, "That sounds fantastic. I want to get involved in that." Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, I was just shocked as well because. You know, women were not like that was not something that women were allowed to do in Ireland. Like there was, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what year Katie started boxing, but I know she was from a boxing family. She had da- dad supporting mm. her, you know, and she, you know, they found inroads. Like I think she pretended to be a boy for a number of the fights, right? So it wasn't something. And it, I think around, you know, the first couple of years that I was boxing. The, there was a thing in England with, I think it was Jane Couch and she, um, 
she wanted permission to fight as a pro in England. And I think she, you know, like the arguments were always like complete nonsense. Like, oh, women are too emotional to box. Like that was still happening. Like that was still the rhetoric back then. Right. So this was something so foreign um, and exciting. Like it just, I don't know. I just, I love it. Yeah. Cause I think a pre, a previous um, guest of ours on the Rocky road, Deirdre Nelson, she won a court case, uh, against the Irish board in order to box at home in 2001, the same year that Katie Taylor fought Alana, Alana Audley or Alana Murphy in the first sanctioned women's boxing match in Ireland. So that was 2001. So by that stage, you're already in America and you're already starting to lace up the gloves yourself. I think, yeah, is it around 2001 that you began? So I moved back to New York uh, um, from Scotland around... <clears throat> And I think it was March 2000. And yeah, I did. I started to get more serious then. And I did. I I was boxing. Like I I lost a couple of times. Um, And then 2004, no, 2003, I got a silver. And 2004, I was injured. And then 2005, 2006, I got gold. 2007, I had my son. 2008 I lost in the garden I lost I got a silver so I knew at that point that I you know was getting to be too much like I couldn't you know single parent immigrant small child full-time working I I knew I couldn't sustain it but I was like not I had such a good run I'm not going out on a loss and um so I had a friend over here who boxed too and she said look I'm gonna help you like please don't go out on a loss like you know get your get your third set of golden gloves um so she would help like she would come to my house on saturday and stay with my son for a couple hours so i could go spar um so i would you know i just i i knew that like my time was coming to an end but like i wanted to go out on a high so i'm glad i was able to do that what what was it like to box in the states as a female boxer at the time i I believe you you ended up at gleason's gym with the famous gleason's gym jake lamotta roberta duran and so many other names boxed there even ireland's Barry McGuigan had a spell there over there when he John boxed. He used to go John there Cody. for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was it like for you? Who, who was around the scene? What coaches were there? Who was helping you? And were you welcomed as a as an Irish fighter? They probably thought like, yeah, this is this is exactly what we want. You know, it was still very new. It was very very new. I started off actually in a gym. The first gym that I went to was called Wall Street Boxing, and it was way in the bottom of Manhattan. It was on the twenty first floor of a building. Um, but when I came back from Scotland, I went, I knew some, I'd been in a competition and then there was a girl there called Alicia Ashley. She's, um, a Jamaican champion. Like, I don't know, she was maybe seven time world champion. She's in the Guinness book of records for like the oldest world champion. Um, she's just been inducted into the, uh, international boxing hall of fame. Really? Yeah. No, she's, she's amazing so i knew her and her brother trained her um so i went over and started training with them and um hector roca was around a lot he trained arturo Gotti, um a number of champions but he worked closely with devon but devon had alicia who was world champion and then he had me who um you know became three-time golden glove champion now or you know until recently at least he had heather hardy who's another world champion um you know he was a uh kickboxing champion himself like 
phenomenal fighter. I mean, he used to, on his birthday, he was, I don't know, I, I remember him being in his late 50s. So, like, but on his birthday, he would spar the number of uh, rounds of his age every time. And that was how he spent his birthday. So, everyone who came to the gym would have to give him a couple of rounds. And, like, that's how he, you know, that just, that his, um, his, uh, Box kickboxing name was the energizer. Like he just didn't stop. Okay. So um, yeah, so he was my trainer. He was very, you know, really technical. Like he broke me down. Like when I got there, he was like, no, no, you're gonna have to change everything. Like this is we're starting from scratch. Um and a lot of repetition, but also <clears throat> a lot of movement, which was really, you know, how I became a champion because I learned how to move my feet and to get out of the way. And um you know, and I had, you know, great people to spar with, you know, to be able to spar with Alicia Ashley. You know, we had some great fighters at, in Gleason's at that time. <clears throat> and we had another girl, um, Maureen Shea, who has Irish heritage as well. Um, and uh, Veronica Jeffrey, who was also world champion, like some really phenomenal women over there. So, yeah, it was great. I mean, the early days, you know, w- women were still a novelty and, you know, I, I used to go train early in the morning and I liked that because there wasn't a lot of people around and I just liked to go in, do my work and get out. Um, <clears throat> so I never felt uncomfortable in that way. And I think then as I got better and better, I started to get respect, right? It's like, oh, that's, she's from our gym. She keeps winning. Um, so then you get, you know, you kind of get respect and like, it's not, you're not treated differently. You're treated, you know, like a champion. So um so it wasn't weird, but there was those many weird, like the reactions to women boxing back then were just, you know, it was like I never got a positive reaction. I was like, why would you do that? Well, you're so small. And, you know, it was just like all, all this negativity. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't care. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, were, were you complete? Were you a total outsider to boxing when you began or did you kind of know what the scene was like? Or was it you walked in the gym, a complete kind of newbie effectively i i don't think you know i i think i'd probably watch two boxing matches in my life i knew nothing about boxing <clears throat> i'd done a little bit of kickboxing but i was just fascinated and um i don't know it just made me feel so powerful and i think also like you know i was like late teen, you know late teens early 20s you know your mind is very busy at that age right like there's a lot of stuff going on you got a lot of things to worry about and i loved that <clears throat> When I was boxing, like everything went away, right? You are just there in that moment. Like you can't get distracted. And I, so I just found like, it was very therapeutic for me just to like zone out and um, yeah, just physically addicting. And I think, you know, being around incredible champions, like people that you just admire, like that you just watch and you want to emulate and you want to learn from them. I think, um, pushed me you know to to really get passionate about it like oh if you you know if i want to be like that i'm gonna have to dig deep you know we did like we gave everything to it we <clears throat> we you know like i said i was going to you know i was going to school and like yeah. working on like very little sleep and just keep going you know you're dedicated you, you gain respect quite quickly by showing your your dedication was absolutely 
Yeah, completely exacting. Uh, you mentioned Maureen Shea, like I think uh, Million Dollar Baby came out in 2004, you know, as you're really getting very, very serious about your boxing. And I guess you look at Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman, the two boxing old timers, and they could have been, you know, anyone really sitting at ringside in Gleason's gym at the time because it was full of that sort of scene, wasn't it? Just all guys coming in to watch, watch you guys fight and watch you guys spar and uh, you, you're nearly paying at the door to watch the spar someday. Well, I don't, you know, first of all, like I said, I worked during the day, so I wasn't there all the time, right? I, I did spar with um, Hilary Swank. Um, like the, the problem, <laughs> the problem with me sparring with Hilary Swank, she was a lot bigger than me. I was like, you know, 106 pounds. So <clears throat> they're like, no, you got to go easy, go easy. But then she would try to hit me. Like I try to lay one on me. So I would like hit her back. So um, they didn't let me spar for long. <laughs> but I, I, I know that like Maureen Shea got a lot of press coverage. And like Maureen was, she's a lovely, really lovely person. And she's a really good athlete. Um, and, you know, it was just, that was her moment in time. Like she worked at, Maureen worked at, with Hector Roca, who trained Hilary Swank. Um, so she was a main sparring partner and it just took off, you know, with the media, um, you know, which I am delighted that she got that, but it was also a distraction. It was a big distraction for her. And she lost in the garden. She lost against, um, Ronica Jeffrey, who I also mentioned, who's from Gleason's gym, um, and I think it was just, you know, it's like very overwhelming, right? So Hillary Swank was ringside. I was right ring, you know, I was very close and Hillary Swank was right there. And I remember saying hi to her, um, you know, so it was, yeah, it was like, it, it, first, well, you know, I don't know if I love the story. I mean, it's, it's a pretty depressing story. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, it's good for I guess any kind of publicity for women's boxing is good for women's boxing. You know, women's boxing, I think, goes through peaks and valleys, right? I mean, think it's having a big moment right now. But the, the level of competition is just insane. It, it's what, like, and particularly Irish women, like, it's wild how quickly the, you know, the skill level um increased you know even like i said mentioned to you before we went to see um the taylor serrano fight yeah. in Madison square garden like first of all i'd say 85 percent of the audience in that place and there's there's a lot of um puerto rican boxing fans but at least 85 percent of the audience walked off a plane from ireland all you could hear was irish voices everywhere so like the support like the love the energy um of that was insane like it was just so ecstatic um you know it was a rough fight like you know i was worried there in the fifth round i was like katie like come on um i think she won i think she clearly won the fight um i watched it multiple times since then and every time i watched him like even more so yes she did but i think it was a rough fight for her, you know. I mean, I think it just her skill level that she was able to like withstand that, and and then just like I almost feed off of it, right? Um, Do you yeah. know either of the girls, or the women? No, I don't. I, I mean, I have moved in circles with where Amanda's around. I mean, she used to go to Leeson's and Spar. Like, I'm sure I've been in her presence, and she did Golden Gloves, but I don't know her. Um, I I know that. 
Um, actually, Elisa Ashley, I think, fought Cindy Serrano, who was also a great fighter. I mean, she probably didn't, you know, get to the level Amanda's at, but she's also a great fighter. I mean, look, these women are astonishing fighters. Like, the skill level is astonishing. Um, so I think, like, I absolutely 100% thousand credit to Amanda Serrano. I just think Katie won, right? She, you know, the judges thought she won. I think she won. I know. I think in that moment in the night, there was like the Puerto Rican audience was probably not thrilled with the decision. And, and I can see that, right? Because we always see what we want to see with our fighters. Like we're looking for certain things. And, um, you know, I think if if Katie had, you know, waited even half another round to pick it up she would have lost the fight it was you know and if it was a, if it was a draw i could have lived with it either um but i think in watching it again i was like okay now it's clearer at this point right the, the early rounds were not she wasn't being dominated entirely they were close rounds right so and then all of the later rounds were her rounds yeah, I'd say it was an, an amazing event to be uh, present at as well. I'd say heart coming out of your chest at the time as well and elated afterwards. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, uh, how did it feel being back, back at the garden for yourself, like uh, considering you had three of the best nights of your life there as well? Yeah, I mean, it's always exciting to be in the garden. Like I haven't, you know, I've been to like fights over the over the years Um there but like yeah it's always exciting like and you get that energy um not the same energy that you do when you're going in to actually compete you know but it does feel nice to be there you can tell it you you did you ever suffer from pre-fight anxiety particularly at the start i've suffered from pre-fight anxiety all the time all the time i think it was just um performance anxiety you know you're like i worked so hard for this like i you know, I want to be able to go out there and perform. I mean, I, I'm sure yeah, it got, it got less, you know, the more wins that I notched up, like, you know, where you get to a point where you're like, oh no, okay. I do know what I'm doing. Like, it's going to be yeah. okay. I'm just going to go out there and do my thing. Um, I guess it was less anxiety, but it, there was always, you know, I always felt exhausted right before the fight. I'm like, damn, I got no energy. Like, how am I going to do this fight? Yeah. And that's just the nerves, you know? Um, but once the bell rings and do you look back at do you look back at your performances? There's a, lot, there's a good few of them up on YouTube. Do you look back and watch yourself fight and ever so ever so often and think, I don't look too nervous there as I'm throwing, you know, a hundred punches around? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you the nerves disappear as soon as you kind of start fighting. Like I, you know, some fights I was like, okay, I was very slow to start, but um if I got hit once, then I was like, okay, here, here we go. Um but yeah, I do. Like I have to, you know, I haven't, I had them on like DVD, you know, so I have to like get them transferred to something else, seeing that we don't even ha haven't had a DVD for years. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it is fun to watch them. Did, did um, your exploits in the Golden Globes get much coverage back home in the, uh, in the media at the time or anything like that? I don't think it was ever covered. But the Irish, um, is it the Irish voice? Yeah, the Irish voice. Um, there was a, reporter there his name is James Wan. Jay yeah but, Jay's yeah. fantastic yeah I love Jay he's so good so he followed my career like he you know used to cover me um all my fights so yeah he, you know we still keep in touch he's a great guy yeah full disclosure I might not know too much about your career had Jay not you know written you know written his reports and then we can find stuff on YouTube we can find other source materials as well but yeah no Jay's doing a great job over in New York the last you know donkey's years at this stage 
Yeah, 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 yeah. He did cover John Duddy a lot and in that era, you know, the same era that I was in. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, that was the most coverage I got. I mean, I, you know, get covered in the daily news as well because they, you know, sponsored the Golden Gloves. Mm. <clears throat> and I think I got into like Boxing Digest once. Um, so I definitely have a copy of that around. Yeah. So they're yeah, a little, cl- little. Clearing, out the, clearing out the cupboards during COVID, finding the uh, the old memorabilia treasure trove. Did you, Absolutely. When yeah. you were winning um, Golden Gloves at the time, like 2005, 2006, that's when Katie Taylor's winning her first European and then in 06, her first world title in the amateurs. Um, coming up to the Olympics in 2012, I know you had time away to have your son Liam and he came back. One last bid for glory and you were successful, completed the hat trick. But did you ever consider like coming home? Um, I know you were building your career in New York and we'll get to that now in a second. But did you ever consider coming home as women's boxing had a spearhead in Taylor um, a, an opportunity to box for the national team? I know you were thwarted in your kind of maybe ambition to box for the USA due to the citizenship issue. Was coming home boxing for Ireland, maybe aiming for the Olympics ever a consideration or was the new life above all? You know, I just, it was, it was too late for me. Um, you know, I had, like I said, I, I had, a, had a child and, um, I just made a decision that, you know, I, I couldn't do, like, I could, I didn't have, you know, if I had family here to help me and support me and like, you know, we'll take care of them or whatever different story. There wasn't that there was no money. There was no sponsorship. It cost money, you know, I mean, it's, and, and I have to say like the least, the honor of Gleason's gym, Bruce Silverglade was, he was so good to me. Um, I don't know the year after I had my son, he didn't charge me gym fees, you know, my trainer looked out for me, like people were really good to me, but you think about, you know, boxing is always presented as a working man sport, but you know, it's not really that not over here. It's, it's pretty expensive. The gyms are expensive. The trainers are expensive. The equipment is expensive. Um, you know, so it's not like, I, I don't know, maybe in the younger years, people go to community gyms like they do in Dublin or in Scotland, um, and have better access to things. But like, as an adult, it's an expensive sport, you know, and I, you know, I just didn't have it like that. And I, I also, you know, having watched um, a number of my peers' professional careers be, you know, kind of um, disappointing to them, um, I didn't want to go that route either. You know, like I, you know, knew people that were incredibly talented, incredibly talented and like got like offered just pittance for, you know, for their performances and were had to make were made to sell their own tickets just to cover, you know, it, and then they would have fights arranged and then it would fall through or get rescheduled. And, you know, you've devoted your life for six weeks to training. Um, so look, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled to see that women are now getting the world stage. They deserve the world stage. I mean, you know, Irish women aside, Irish, you know, I'm the biggest fan of Irish women, but you know, like look at Clarissa Shields, like you cannot take anything away from that woman. She has two Olympic, is it two Olympic gold medals? Two Olympic golds, yeah, yeah, 2012, 2016. And no one can beat her, you know, people might not love her, you know, because she's, she's authentic and she's not going to change for the world and she's not going to pretend to be something she's not. But she is a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal athlete. Like you cannot take anything away from that woman. Um, 
you know, there's like, there's just incredible, like Savannah Marshall, like she's an incredible athlete too, you know, but there's, there's so many incredible athletes. So I'm like thrilled that to see women on the rise, um, but not all women are getting, you know, not all women are getting those off uh, opportunities or, you know, and, and I don't know how the decisions are made that certain women get better opportunities than others. But like boxing has notoriously, you know, kind of been like that over the years. So um, so I don't think it's not a sport that like I'm I feel confident just yet that only skill is going to bring you to the top in right i mean i that's what i love about katie too is that she's authentic and she hasn't um caved to any pressure to present herself as the kind of woman the media would love to her, present her you know they always like to either present the women or as very sexualized or very mas- masculine right so like they like to present in those two extremes and katie is just no, she's her own woman. She's like, I'm not, you know, this is who I am. Like, I I want to be admired as for the athlete that I am. And like, that's a beautiful thing. And it's beautiful that she's been able to get there. But a lot of women are not able to get there. And that's almost become the selling point for Taylor, that there is no frills, no bullshit, no yeah. media persona. The performances, you know, they stand for speak themselves. For themselves. And, yeah, yeah, they speak for themselves. And, and her willingness to take on pretty much only the best. And, and then, you know, to keep her undisputed status, she'll she'll fight her mandatories. But then she wants the biggest and the best fights. Do you think you'll come home if she can secure the uh, Serrano rematch at Crow Park? That would be a dream uh, encounter. I would love to. I would love to. Yeah, I'm already, yeah. I'm trying to, you know, wrap my brain around it. I would love to do that. I would really, you know, I, I have to say it was amazing in Madison Square Garden, but like I can only imagine in Crow Park, the, the madness. I don't know if, you know, I don't know if uh, Serrano wants to do that. I probably don't think so. I think they're making a mistake putting their eggs in the Serrano basket because why give your biggest rival the ability to ruin your dreams? And if your dream is a homecoming fight, why put, why give Serrano that power? Why not just say, okay, look, we're going a different option. And then if Serrano wants it bad enough, she can maybe sign. And and maybe, you know, these are smart businessmen. I'm sure they're you know, I'm sure they're doing the right thing in the background, but I just think they've put a lot of uh, power in Serrano's hands and she can kibosh the whole thing. I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really fancy giving her that power myself. Yeah. I, you know, but that I think is also a testament to the authenticity of Katie Taylor in that, like, I want to give the performance of lifetime for my country. You know what I mean? She's also a very, she's very patriotic like she's you know she's for her people right so i think um you know the beautiful thing about katie taylor that shines through is that she has this quiet confidence right and um you know she she just sees her she has her vision and she's prepared to do it like i don't think she has any doubts like she's not worried about that kind of stuff she's just like no let me get the biggest and the best and you know put on a show yeah, pretty much. And I think it'd be, uh, I think it'd be pretty incredible. I know you keep an eye on the other Irish boxers as well. Um, and like I said, in the intro, Katie Taylor's not the only one putting her hand up. And like the Irish sports person of the year, as far as I'm concerned, is Broadhurst. Uh, Baby oh, Canelo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. The year yep. she's had. Yeah, I follow her on Instagram. She actually, where did I see her on um, 
something and she had been flown over to spar with katie taylor for yeah. the serrano fight um no she's brilliant she's absolutely brilliant kelly harrington um the o'rourke sisters uh Kleena darcy um so many so many of them and the youth like i was just watching well Kleena darcy's in, in the youth and dervla Tanili, is it yes yeah, so yeah. there's some like you know i just i it makes me so happy to see irish women doing so well and plenty more, I'd say, will get opportunities to turn professional uh, in the coming years, and you know maybe get their get their own fights at the garden as well. Much like uh, much like you had your nights too, and Taylor's just had hers in twenty twenty two. Ruth, I want to ask you about your your career now. Um, obviously, you've spent a lot of time studying. You know, between the J one has a has a college link, and the Scotland story has a college link. So you've you spent a lot of time, you know, getting your career on track. And it's, uh, would I be correct in saying you're now the clinical director of Brooklyn's mental health court? Is that is that still your position? Yeah, I'm the um, project and clinical director okay. of the Brooklyn Mental Health Court. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I did like, obviously, I put a lot into my education. Like I came over here um, with a master's from Scotland, but it was very generalized master's. And, you know, I worked here for a few years and realized that, like, I needed my my master's in social work to really do what I wanted to do. Um, so I did get that. And then. You know, I just kind of actually, you know, I didn't plan to be a forensic social worker. I just kind of that was just the path I found. And um, I worked in an organization that hired me on the H-1 visa for a number of years that did case management work for seriously mentally ill folks in the court system. And during that time, I, you know, kind of got to know the players in the court system and the judge and the, you know, ADA and um, the defense attorneys, and then got an opportunity to um, get a position in the mental health court, which was the first mental health court in the state of New York. Um, and it was set up to divert seriously mentally ill adults from um, incarceration to treatment in the community. Um, so I, I've been there actually for 15 years. It's, blows my mind. Um, so I, for, for eight years, I was a, a resource coordinator and learning, you know, the ropes of everything. And then I, seven years ago, I took over as the, um, projects and clinical director. So, yeah. I, I'm in my job 15 years. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A, um, yeah. So it, it does sound interesting and it, it sounds like it's, um, you're, you're going to be throwing new challenges every day as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I really just believe in the mission of what we do. I think it's very important, like incarcerate is so much incarceration over here. And so many people, you know, so many marginalized communities are incarcerated at much higher rates than, you know, less marginalized communities. Um, and seriously, mentally ill folk end up in the criminal justice system all the time, um, just kind of by nature being mentally ill. <clears throat> so I think it's really important work. You know, it's sometimes quite overwhelming and draining, but um, it's also full of hope. You know, you've got people who have had really tough situations, really, you know, kind of tough hand dealt to them and they choose to fight for their life and, you know, to try to get things back on track and get things better. And there's a lot of like, just real hope in that and um, beauty so would, in that, you know. Would you be assigned somebody who's kind of um, maybe up for a crime they've committed or something, but then, you know, they, they say in court or someone, I've, I've suffered from this mental health illness or I've got this, I've got this uh, disability. 
would you then be assigned to that uh, client, I guess, and I guess attempt to lobby on their behalf? Or how do you how do you come into yeah. that? Yeah, no, so we're not kind of an advocacy group. So the, we've been in existence for over 20 years. So all of the players in Brooklyn courthouse know of our existence, right? So if someone is representing a case and they recognize that the person is mentally ill or it's told to them the person is mentally ill. They might approach the, the district attorney's office and say, look, would you consider this person for the mental health court? If the district attorney's office says yes, they come to my clinic and we evaluate them. And if they're you know, diagnosed with mental illness and need help and are willing to engage in treatment, then we could find treatment for them and they um, we place them in treatment and then monitor them for a period of time under court supervision. And then like if they have most often, if they're charged with a felony, they might plead guilty initially to a felony and a misdemeanor. And at the end of their treatment, the felony would be dismissed. And sometimes the misdemeanor would be dismissed. So, you know, they don't have a felony on their record and they've had, you know, a nice period of time where they're doing well and they have a lot of support and um, they're connected to services that are going to long outlast the duration of their mandate. Is this a project that's kind of just in New York or just in Brooklyn, or is it, is it more widespread or is it something that you'd like to see more widespread? Yeah, well, this, ours was the first in the state of New York, but they've now, I think there's over 50 in the state of New York. There's, they're, you know, there's, they're really recognized as a valuable tool and um, um, they're all over the country, right? So Florida also has a really big one, but we, we get visitors. We're a training site for, <clears throat> for mental health courts under our contract. So we get visitors from all over the world. We've had visitors from Scotland, from Wales, from Northern Ireland, um, from Australia. So coming over, like to try and put something together in their jurisdictions and see how we do it. Because it, it must be fairly traumatic for someone with a mental illness to go through the, uh, the system. Yeah. Very, very traumatic. I mean, I think trauma is like, you have to expect that any of the participants who come to our, our court have experienced trauma. And if they hadn't experienced trauma prior to being arrested, they certainly experienced trauma during that process, you know, in Rikers Island, um, you know, if, if folk have been held at Rikers Island and spent time there, that's, you know, pretty traumatizing too. So, yeah, I mean, you know, so I'm saying like people come to us in like, you know, the worst point of their life, like very low and, um, and just, you know, and choose to like still try and like show yeah. up, you know. Is Rikers still as uh, much of a hell on earth as has been described in recent times, I guess? It was a mass burial grave, uh, mass burial site as well during COVID, wasn't it? And well, not not for Rikers. There's a there's another island, um, uh, Potter's Island, where oh, there yes. was a mass burial site, but that was for yeah. I mean, we just had so many deaths in New York. Um, <clears throat> Rikers Island looks so the population from Rikers Island has more than halved over the past few years. Um, the conditions of it, as it is, are very poor. There's still a lot of terrible things happening over there. They are doing a lot of work to <clears throat> try. So even though the general population has decreased, the percentage of seriously mentally ill folks in that the, the population left in the prison has increased, right? Because seriously mentally ill folk help tend to be held for longer um and 
So they are doing a lot of work in-house to try to, you know, reasonably help people and, you know, ensure that they have the support that they need. They have mental observation units, they have pace units, you know, they have all types of like kind of innovative things, but it's still a prison, you know, and it's like you're not getting the best kind of care in a prison and it's traumatic and you're thrown into a situation where you have no control and it's very frightening. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's you know, I mean, there there is a big push and the judge that I work for sat on a commission to close Rikers Island. And, you know, I think ultimately that is the goal, but there's a lot of work to do before they get there. And, you know, they have to build community jails and, um, you know, get permission to build community jails and communities where, you know, people don't want jails. So, you know, it's going to take a while, but um, I, I don't know if they'll ever close it completely. I don't know that I'm fully convinced that they will close it completely, but I but I do hope that, um, that they do. Do you have to occasionally visit these penitentiaries to, you know, meet with clients or? Not really. I mean, I think in my early, the early days of my career, I did, you know, go visit and I would especially go out. They had, you know, specialized units and I'd go out and meet the staff on staff on the units. And um, so when our participants come to court, like if they're coming from Rikers Island, they're brought to court and there's like a, an area low in the courthouse where um, where they keep them, you know, so they would we would go and meet them down there. Um, or they would bring them up to, you know, the visiting pens and we would go meet them there. Um, or we'd see them in the courtroom. So, yeah, so we don't really have to go to the, I mean, it's, um, it's one of the biggest problems with Rikers Island is that it's extremely hard to get to, right. For families, right. who have to go visit their loved ones. It's extremely difficult for them to get there, to bring kids there, you know, and you could travel like two and a half hours to get there. And then they say there's a lockdown, which happens all the time. Right. So you're turned away. Like that's, that's one of the biggest problems. It's it isolates people from their support system. Yeah. Very quickly. The problem was uh, doubled and trebled. Right. Um, do you ever, and this might be a cynical question, but do you ever, do you ever use your boxing, uh, your backer, and you won the gloves three times? Do you ever use it to, because it's all about human connection, is, do you ever use it to connect with people that you work, work with now, like people that might be struggling? You say, listen, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that me. you say that. So the, funny, the early days, like when I was doing, um, when I was doing case management, I used to work with another social worker and we used to go to one of the programs and just meet with our staff from our program and, then they you know they learned from the newspaper something that I was fighting in the garden and like we came up and um I think we had a video of VCR of the fight and they got to watch it like so that was fun we got to connect on that and then more recent like I had you know I had my son like once I left boxing it was like I just it was very painful for me to leave boxing like I did you know uh, I had given everything to boxing. So I just kind of cut it out of my life. I just didn't even go to the gym. I didn't, you know, I just didn't watch boxing, didn't talk about boxing. Um, so, it, you know, I did that for a long, I mean, I did other stuff, you know, I ran and I like, got into other stuff, but I wasn't into that. And then I had, you know, I had my daughter and then, you know, I just trying to find time to get back to the gym was, you know, a wild concept to me, but during COVID, um, a neighbor asked me if I would teach his daughter over Zoom. And I'm like, okay, I guess, you know, what else am I doing? Um, so I started teaching her and it was fun. And then a friend, you know, a 
my daughter's best friend, her mom learned this and she's like, Oh, could you teach me? And, um, and then, so I started teaching her and our, our kids were in dance school together. And then the dance teachers came out and they're like, Oh, could you teach us? And then I just started teaching in the park on Saturdays. And I have like, like about 12 people who rotate in and out. Um, Oh, brilliant. So yeah, I just kind of got back into it. And then my son wanted to do an introduction to boxing course in Gleason's and uh, I signed him up and then I joined back with him and he and I have been going for the past couple of months. So Uh, that's great. That's a, that's a brilliant place to uh, conclude our interview. And I'd say as well. So so you've got your love for the sport back as well. Took the necessary time off and now you're back, uh, back in the game for another 50 years. I think that's it. Yeah, why not? Life for now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's right well look at uh, Ruth O'Sullivan Ruthless Ruth O'Sullivan I hope to see you next year at, uh, in Crow Park uh, what a, it would be you know, brilliant what a, it would be brilliant yeah what a full circle that would be uh, thank you very much today for joining us on the Rocky Road as three times New York Golden Gloves champion Ruth O'Sullivan uh, joining us all the way from Brooklyn New York thank you Ruth Good night. thank you for having me <laughs>